0: India, 1756. Calcutta is lost. The British have been defeated and have been forced to retreat in disgrace. But, inspired by the horror of the infamous Black Hole of Calcutta incident, the British are now full of a righteous desire for revenge. The Navab Siraj Uddaula had ordered over a hundred British prisoners into a tiny space made for just a few. Many of them died, and that had reverberated across the world. The prisoners in the black hole had been so thirsty they'd been sucking perspiration from their own underwear. The jailers had mocked them through the bars, and some had been suffocated, trampled underfoot by their own friends and colleagues. Undoubtedly, it was a horrific event, but stories of the black hole grew in their retelling. And as the historian, Nirad Chowdhury says, they threw a moral halo over the British conquest of India and gave the subsequent campaign its terrific energy. To learn more about the background of this campaign, do go back to episode one, because that's where I kind of lay it all out. But for now, it's time to move forward with our story. So dust off your boots, sharpen your bayonet, and let us march to glory, for that is a place we know well. The news of the fall of Calcutta reached the British base in Madras in August of 1756. An expeditionary force was quickly assembled. It numbered around 900 white soldiers and a similar number of locally recruited Indian sepoys. Amongst the white troops were three companies of His Majesty's 39th Regiment and some artillerymen. These were the only regular British Army troops to be involved in the coming campaign. The 39th were commanded by Colonel Oldacron, but he remained in Madras, and so Captain Air Coote commanded those companies that deployed. He's left us some excellent accounts of the events that followed, and will crop up regularly over the next two episodes, and possibly again in a future series. After a series of internal squabbles, command of the expedition to retake Calcutta was given to a man named Robert Clive, a man who will play a big part in today's episode, and a man whose legacy is still with us. But who is he and what was his background? Clive was a Shropshire lad, an unruly rich kid with a quick temper and a nose for trouble. Through his family connections, he'd managed to get a job with the East India Company as a factor or writer, essentially a glorified storeman. And he arrived in India at the age of 19. But his wasn't the sort of character that would sit still, bide his time and see what happens. When the War of Austrian Succession erupted and spread to India, he quickly took up arms against the French and won plaudits for his bravery at the Siege of Pondicherry in 1748 and for his tactical skill leading a small force during the subsequent Tanjore expedition and later at the Siege of Arcot in 1751. It was there that he and a small force held out against long odds. After his troops were finally relieved, he immediately gathered together his exhausted soldiers and went on to the attack. As Lawrence James says in his book Raj, The Making and Unmaking of British India, this amateur soldier established two principles which would be followed by the professionals who preceded him in command of British armies in India. The first was audacity at all times. Whenever a tactical choice existed, it was best to take the most daring alternative, for it was commonly believed that Indian fighting men were always discountenanced by the unexpected. Clive also saw that it was essential for Indian recruits to be led by exceptionally brave white officers. If the sepoy, as Indian soldiers were known, were led by men they respected, then they became tigers on the battlefield. As John Key says, battles of this time were won by opportunism, mobility, surprise, individual acts of bravery, and sheer good luck a single officer with a taste for improvisation and a reputation for victory could tip the balance. Despite having no formal military training, this jumped-up clerk was now famous in England and was given a diamond-studded sword and the official military rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Just before setting off for Bengal, Clive wrote a letter to his father that said, this expedition, if attended with success, may enable me to do great things it is by far the grandest of my undertakings. I go with great forces and great authority. Commanding the naval side of the expedition was Vice Admiral Charles Watson, an impressive officer who had risen quickly through the ranks of the Navy and was to be instrumental in the coming campaign. He had five warships at his disposal as well as some transports and a fireship. But as well as the British need to retake Calcutta, they were also very aware of the possibility that another war with the French was looming. Therefore, they wanted to take Calcutta and return to Madras as quickly as possible. The expedition finally reached Bengal in the middle of December, but it was in bad shape. The journey had seen the ships separated and the supplies run dangerously low. Many of the men were sick with scurvy. This is probably a good time to quickly mention the weather in Bengal as well, because it varied tremendously, had a big impact on the health of the troops, and also the ability of the troops to maneuver and so on because of the heavy rain and the bogged down countryside. Lieutenant John Cornelli, I think that's how you say it, of Her Majesty's 39 Foot recalled, May, in my opinion, is as hot as human nature can well support. June, July, and August, which form the rainy season and are subject to great thunder and lightning, are very warm, yet frequently each day is refreshed by very cooling showers. September and October are fine, but still very hot. November, December, January, and February are in the morning liable to thick fogs and very cold. In the middle of the day, they are as delightfully temperate as even a European constitution desires. After that, the heat gradually increases. Clive and Watson now had the army at their disposal and they began writing angry letters to the Nawab, demanding compensation. But by Christmas 1756, with no reply, they began their advance up the Hooghly River towards Calcutta. Their first obstacle was the fort of Bajbaj, Baj, a well-fortified spot on the left bank of the river. Clive and the sepoys marched overland, while the white troops, less acclimatized, and let's be honest, probably not quite as physically robust, traveled in the boats up the river. Clive assumed that the garrison would withdraw from the fort when they saw the boats approaching. And so on the 28th of December, he took a few hundred of his men on a tough 16 hour march through the thick forest to prepare an ambush for them. But things quickly changed. Instead, his men were surprised by 2,000 enemy soldiers, which was a relief force marching down from Calcutta. They fell upon them as they slept. Surprisingly, for an old India hand, Clive seems to have neglected posting sentries, a schoolboy era and one that could have been disastrous. The 19th century historian Robert Orme takes up the story. About an hour after the troops had laid down to sleep they were awakened by the fire of small arms in the eastern side of the village into which at the same time a multitude of matchlock men were discovered advancing with resolution. During this confusion the enemy, meeting no resistance, advanced and took possession of the eastern bank, from which under the shelter of various covers they kept up continual though irregular fire, wounding several and killing an ensign. Colonel Clive, apprehensive of a panic should he order the troops to march out of reach of the enemy's fire, commended the troops to stand firm and detached two platoons, one from the right and the other from the center, opposite to which the enemy's fire was strongest. Of the platoon from the center, eight men were killed by one volley before they gained the bank. The rest nevertheless returned the fire and then forced their way with their bayonets into the village where they were joined by the other platoon which had succeeded with the loss of just three men. This intrepidity quelled the enemy's courage who no longer appeared in bodies but shifted in small parties from shelter to shelter, firing rarely and with little effect. Sometimes it's interesting when you read the sources to kind of compare and contrast so The last person I quoted was Robert Orme. Now I'm going to quote Tapan Chatterjee, who's an Indian historian. Clive had no idea that Manik Chand was encamped within a couple of miles, but having arranged and posted his men at different points, went forth with a detachment of 200 soldiers to capture the fort. As they marched along, Manik Chand's infantry of 2,000 strong fell on them. Manik Chand's troops had fought against the English at Calcutta. They had entered into the present battle rather light-heartedly and with some contempt. But they did not know Clive. He was one too many for them. In half an hour, with a couple of hard blows, Clive had broken the ranks of the 2,000, killing nearly 200 of them. Four of their captains fell on the battlefield. A shot flew over Manik-Chan's head, taking his turban along with it. That was enough to make him leave the field in a hurry and run for his life, without stopping until he reached Calcutta and so an incredibly dangerous situation was quickly reversed thanks to Clive's unwillingness to retire and a small but audacious counterattack that surprised the enemy and broke their fighting spirit. I think we get a little glimpse there of Clive's modus operandi. He was clearly a very aggressive commanding officer. You know, he clearly believed in throwing his troops forward against the odds. And in fairness, it seems to work. With the Nawab's relief force now scattered, the British could focus on attacking the fort. And it's now that one of my favourite moments of the entire campaign takes place. A delicious moment that I hope you will enjoy as much as me. While Clive and the other officers debated when and how to capture the fort, a lone sailor from the Kent called Strahan, blind, drunk and ready for a scrap, decided to cross the moat and enter a small breach in the wall. Somehow, wielding his cutlass and firing his pistol, he fought his way to the battlements and shouted to his comrades outside, "'The place is mine!' Other sailors quickly followed him into the breach and fought their way through the fort and and alongside him, where he was still busy energetically fighting the enemy single-handedly with the stub of a broken cutlass and his fists. Some company troops and a number of the thirty-nine foot followed up, and the fort was soon in British hands." I have to pause here and do this. (laughs) Now that, my friend, are how empires are won. There is something about that story that makes me proud to be British. Just imagine it for a moment, the size of the balls on this guy. He has a few glasses of rum and thinks, I reckon I can take this fort on my own, can't be that difficult. Picks up his pistol and cutlass and goes looking for glory. Now if he'd have been killed, we'd all be thinking what an idiot he was. But no, this guy is such a badass that he storms inside, takes on the entire garrison, and wins. Mr. Strahan, I tip my hat to you. But Clive and the other regular army officers didn't quite see it that way. They were livid. Captain Coote of the 39th wrote that the place was taken without the least honour to anybody. Though, of course, you could argue through modern eyes that it was a great example of decentralised command. Strahan was aware that the strategic goal was to capture the fort. He saw an opportunity and he took it. Admiral Watson must have had a wry smile on his face that one of his sailors had upstaged the great Colonel Clive. When called in front of him, Strahan pleaded guilty but said that he thought there was no harm in what he had done. As he was led off to be punished, he uttered the beautifully barbed words that he would never take another fort by himself as long as he lived. The flogging that he was sentenced to never materialized, and Strahan's moment in the historical sun was over. But if only men like Strahan left autobiographies, how much fun would we have reading them? What a man, what a story he must have had. The next morning, I'm sure with many of the men struggling with hangovers, the fort was demolished and the advance continued. But the Nawab's forces had now lost some of their stomach for a fight. These redcoats seemed a tougher breed than the ones they had fought in Calcutta. As Clive's force advanced, they finally reached the city and after a short exchange of artillery fire at the gates to the town most of the defenders ran away. They found the naval gunfire and its ability to dominate the battle space extraordinarily dreadful, having never experienced anything like it before. Calcutta was now back in British hands. The place had inevitably been ransacked and was in ruins. Most of the important buildings had been burned down. But the old residents were happy to be back and soon began rebuilding it. But for Clive, with a foot in both the military and political camps, this wasn't enough. Taking Calcutta was only the beginning. He had achieved his immediate goal, but he could see that the Nawab, unpopular with his own people, was now on the back foot. There was also a feeling that the British needed to quickly reassert their authority after the debacle of the fall of Calcutta and to gain retribution for the deaths at the Black Hole. On the 8th of January 1757, the Marlborough arrived at Calcutta with much-needed reinforcements as well as all of the expedition's field guns. These were much needed if Clive was to continue his, his advance and take his fight to the Navab. A punitive expedition was quickly sent along the Hooghly River. Grain stores were burnt, local houses were ransacked, and any pockets of the Navab's army were quickly forced to retreat. Clive's force was a mixed bag of white company troops, his sepoys, who now dressed, armed, and drilled like their European counterparts, Watson's sailors, and of course the men of the 39th Regiment. This group were now becoming battle-hardened and confident, Morale was high as they realized that, even massively outnumbered, they could take on and defeat the Navab's slightly shaky troops. But the fighting still wasn't over. In early February, the Navab marched on Calcutta with a massive army. Air Coot of the 39 foot estimated that it was close to 100,000 men. They were also accompanied by elephants and 30 pieces of cannon. 100,000 is probably a slight exaggeration, but hey, he was there, I wasn't. The British force, in comparison, numbered a little over 2,000, with the majority of them being sepoys. Outnumbered, 50 to one. I can barely even imagine it. My insides would turn to liquid facing those sorts of odds. But Clive wasn't like me, and true to form decided to take the initiative and take the battle to the enemy. He quickly marched his force directly to the Nawab's camp at the northeast of Calcutta and immediately attacked. Shortly after dawn though, a heavy fog descended. It was so thick that the men could barely see their own hands. Inevitably, the battle was chaotic. Clive, understandably, struggled to maintain command and control of his force. The terrain, crisscrossed with ditches and rice fields, made it difficult for him to maneuver effectively and the enemy were able to bring up their cannons and inflict relatively heavy casualties on his force at close range. As the fog was finally clearing as well, the Nawab's Persian cavalry attacked the British rear. They came close to breaking through, but Ensign York and a platoon of the 39th were able to hold them off and then rescue one of the guns which had nearly been captured. It was proving a much tougher battle than expected. The small force was right in the middle of the hornet's nest and fighting for its life. Historian Tapan Chatterjee says, a fierce struggle followed. The English artillery fired a rapid succession of shots and that served to check the first brunt of the attack. When the mist cleared at nine in the morning, the English saw that they had come inside the Nawab's camp. Clive went on fighting with redoubled vigour. His aim was to capture Siraj ad in person, thus putting an end to the battle. But the Nawab was not to be so easily seized. He had already removed himself to Govinda Mitter's garden house which stood close by. Clive's energies were therefore spent in vain, and it was now only a question of how quickly to get out of the present debacle. Eventually, at this point, realising that his men were exhausted, Clive broke off the attack, and the column forced its way through the enemy to the south, reaching the road to Fort William and then on to the recently renovated fort itself. The battle had been a confused and badly managed affair, really. British casualties were 56 dead and another 137 wounded. They claimed to have inflicted around 1,500 casualties on the enemy, though that seems a slightly exaggerated figure. As the author Stuart Reed says, All in all, it was an unhappy affair, which at first resulted in some considerable murmuring amongst the troops as to Clive's mismanagement of it. Certainly, he did not cover himself in glory in what he would later admit was the hottest fight he was ever involved in. But the battle did prove to be important. It broke the will of the Nawab's army. It had taken huge brass balls to walk a small, massively outnumbered force right into the middle of the enemy camp, shoot the shit out of them, and then walk out again. A few days later, the Nawab sued for peace, and a treaty, the Treaty of Alinagar, was signed, but it was only to be a pause in the fighting. There had not yet been a decisive victory, and both sides were unhappy with the terms of the deal that was negotiated. One of the provisions made in the treaty was for a British agent to be stationed at the Nawab's capital. And so our old friend Mr William Watts, who you may remember from episode one, where he was the luckless manager of the British factory at Kasim Bazar, was sent to Murshidabad, the Nawab's capital. Alongside him was a local player with a lot of influence called Omi Chand. These two men managed a lot of very important and effective intelligence work, quickly bribing their way into the Nawab's inner circle, including his own chief spy. They found out what his problems were, who his enemies were, and who could be turned to the British cause. As Chatterjee says, The Nawab made a point of asking the English to send William Watts. Watts's sleek body and chubby face must have led the Nawab to take him for a simpleton with a weak spirit. The Nawab was a raw youth who had not yet learned that things are not what they seem. This Watts was to find out from the Nawab's court every small thing that happened at Mashidabad, and to pass on to Clive at Calcutta such detail, detailed accounts of everything which came to his notice that it was obvious that he was anything but a nitwit. In the meantime, things had become even more complicated as news trickled through from Europe that what was later referred to as the Seven Years' War had commenced. Britain and France were on opposite sides and the fighting would inevitably spread to India. The French tried to convince the Nawab to join them in battle against the British. They made the rather compelling case that if the British defeated them, the French that is, there would be no counterbalance to their ambition and Clive and his army would completely be able to dominate Bengal and destroy the Navab. Now that war was declared, Clive's force, now with an extra 300 reinforcements, recently arrived from Bombay, quickly marched to the French-controlled town of Chandanagar, a settlement north of Calcutta up the Hooghly River, but the French were ready for them. They had a strong force of over 700 men and their main fortified citadel Fort Dale on, had recently had its walls strengthened and its artillery was numerous and in good shape, including huge 32-pounders. On the 14th of March 1857, the British began their attack. But it was a half-hearted affair to drive in the French outposts on the edge of the city. Air Coot of the 39th takes up the story. Colonel Clive ordered the pickets with the company's grenadiers to march into the French bounds, which is encompassed with an old ditch, the entrance into a gateway with embrasures on the top and no cannon, which the French had evacuated. As soon as Captain Lynn, who commanded the party, had taken possession, he acquainted the Colonel, who ordered Major Kilpatrick and me with my company of grenadiers to join Captain Lynn and send him word after we had reconnoitred the place. On our arrival there, we found a party of the French were in possession of a road leading to a redoubt that they had thrown up close under their fort where they had a battery of cannon, and upon our advancing down the road, they fired some shot at us. We detached some parties through a wood and drove them from the road into their batteries with the loss of some men. We then sent for the colonel, who as soon as he joined us sent to the camp for more troops. We continued firing at each other in an irregular manner until about noon, at which time the colonel ordered me to continue with my grenadier company and about two hundred sepoys at the advanced post, and that he would go with the rest of our troops to the entrance which was about a mile back. At two o'clock, word was brought to me that the French were making a sortie. Soon after I perceived the sepoys retiring from their post, upon which I sent to the colonel to let him know the French were coming out. I was then obliged to divide my company, which consisted of about 50 men, into two or three parties, very much against my inclination, to take possession of the ground the sepoys had quitted. We fired pretty warmly for a quarter of an hour when the French retreated again into their battery. On this occasion I had gentlemen, Mr. Took, who was a volunteer, killed and two of my men wounded. So volunteers were usually gentlemen who couldn't afford to, to buy a commission, and they would mess with the officers while serving with the men. I think that's usually how volunteers worked. Quite interesting, actually. Anyway, as he carries on. The enemy lost five or six Europeans and some blacks. By their retiring, I got close under their battery and was tolerably well sheltered by an old house where I continued firing until about seven o'clock, at which time I was relieved and marched back to the camp. This night, the colonel sent a party to take possession of the southward of the town. The French had attempted to block the river leading towards the fort. It's about a quarter of a mile wide here, but they sank ships to try and make it really hard to navigate. But they didn't do a good job, and under the cover of a flag of truce, Lieutenant Hay, an intelligence officer with the Kent, went to their fort to demand its surrender. On his way there and back he studied the channel and realised that with care they could still navigate their vessels up the river to assault the fort. By the 23rd of March, the tide was now right for Admiral Watson's ships and the final assault began. Clive's infantry stormed and captured the French battery that commanded the river before the Navy came sailing north, guns blazing. It was a brutal close-quarter artillery duel between the guns of the French Fort and the Kent, the Tiger and the Salisbury. At one point, a French shell struck the kent and ignited some cartridges, filling the lower decks with smoke. Thinking the ship was in flames, 70 or 80 of the crew scrambled through portholes and jumped from the deck into other boats alongside them. But it was false alarm, and Lieutenant William Brereton screamed at the men to return to their posts. ''Are you Britons?'' he shouted. ''You're Englishmen, and yet you fly from danger. Shame, shame!'' It was a great little speech to shout through the portholes in the middle of a battle and it worked. Embarrassed at their hastiness to abandon ship, the jack tars quickly returned to their stations. For more than three hours, the continuous roll and thunder of cannon and muskets deafened everyone and the ground shook. Wood splintered, men screamed and smoke settled across the water. French casualties inside the fort quickly mounted and became intolerable once Clive's sharpshooters had managed to climb onto the roofs of neighbouring houses and pick off the defenders. At about half past nine in the morning, realising that it was pointless to continue the slaughter, the French raised the white flag over the battered fort and surrendered. They had suffered over a hundred killed and wounded, including nearly all of their artillerymen. It had been a hard fight and it was far from one-sided. The Kent was so badly damaged that it would never go to sea again and the Tiger wasn't much better. But the fact was that the French were now no longer a force in Bengal and this gave the British a great freedom of action and the ability to finally gain full control of the region. The stage is now set for a final and decisive war with the Nawab and his huge army. Surely even Clive will think twice about taking on this petulant young man again. Could this be the end of the East India Company in Bengal? Or is it gonna be the beginning? Join me, Christian Parkinson, in the next episode where we'll stand shoulder to shoulder with the men of the 39th as they battle huge odds at Plassey. We'll see the sepoys of John Company come of age and find out once and for all if Colonel Clive has what it takes to win another great battle. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do consider leaving a review on your podcasting app or sharing the links with any friends or family who you think may appreciate a dose of good old fashioned patriotic history. For too long, these stories have been forgotten and I'm on a mission to change that and to find new ways to bring back our nation's stories of wars, battles and great men. Our ancestors deserve it. After all, we wouldn't be here without them.